A very good morning to you all. Uh, and it's always a joy for Nosizo and myself uh, to be here at GPC, especially this weekend. Um, thank you to those who are joining us from the comforts of their homes, uh, but also kudos to those who are here physically, uh, the faithful and the courageous uh, who got out of their homes to come to church this morning. I want to invite you to reflect with me uh, on the theme, God's mission, uh, God's uh, commission and calling to the church. Um, another way of putting the same theme uh, is what is in the bulletin, God's divine invitation uh, to his uh, mission. In the words of Trevin Wax, the church is in crisis as it always is. The church is in crisis as it always is. And such could be said of the church in the early centuries. Uh, such could be said about the church during the Middle Ages, in the tumultuous times of the Reformation. But also in our modern era, the church is in crisis as it always is. From the days when Christians were getting drunk at the table in Corinth, to the brutal extermination of Christians today at the hands of Islamic terrorists. The church is in crisis as it always is. But the church is also stable as it always is. Upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus said. Not the pastor, not the church planter, not the elder. I, Jesus, myself will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like the parable he tells of the wise man, Jesus builds his house on the rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against his people. Yes, there will be fallings away. Yes, there will be false messiahs. Yes, there will be heresies that ravage his teaching. Yes, there will be moral aberrations that harm our witness and persecutions that sweep over the landscape. But the truth is that the church will not fail. The success of the church, the success of missions is entirely dependent on Jesus' commitment to build his church. The true church is always in crisis, but always stable. We are in a spiritual battle whose outcome is secure, it's guaranteed. I will build my church. And so any attempt to address our current cultural context must keep in mind both of these truths. The church is in crisis and the church is stable. If we do not consider the seriousness of the crisis we face, we will succumb to complacency and lose the edge of our witness. If we do not consider the stability of Jesus' promise, on the other hand, we will succumb to fruitless fear and anxiety. And so our task 
is to see the opportunity that accompanies every challenge and to see the challenges that accompany every opportunity. We therefore need discernment and wisdom that is grounded in hopeful realism. The church is always in crisis, and yet the church is always stable because the church belongs to Jesus. And so the greatest challenge facing the church in America today is not religious liberty. The challenge is whether or not the church will proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. Not whether the world will let us preach it, but whether we think the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. And that's according to Michael Houghton in one of his books. And this is why we need to rethink our missionary calling in the light of the great challenges that we face today. And to rethink is always to reroot ourselves in that biblical story, the grand story, the foundational narrative which we are called to live out in God's word. And to help us to do that, I would want to invite us to consider these two passages of scripture, Exodus 19 verses 4 to 6, and then Deuteronomy 10 verses 14 to 19. And I'll read from Exodus 19 verse 4 to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured, treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And I want to call this the great commission of the Hebrew Bible. And you will notice that these verses are sandwiched between two great events in the history of Israel. They've just come out of Egypt after centuries of slavery and genocide, and they're about to receive the law on Mount Sinai. And this is what Yahweh says to them through Moses in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you, I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You must never make the mistake of thinking that the Old Testament is all about the law and the New Testament is about grace. From beginning to end, Yahweh's dealings with his people are dealings of grace. It is Yahweh who takes the initiative. It is he who has carried the people of Israel along like a mother eagle carrying her young. If Old Testament Israel exists as a people at all, it is because of Yahweh's unmerited, undeserved compassion for them. And their response to this sheer gift of grace is obedience, as we read in verse 5. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the nations. And he goes on to say, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
just as Yahweh himself is holy, just as Yahweh himself is different, is distinct, so the people who have come to know Yahweh must also be distinct. They must be different. And they are to be a priestly kingdom. The priests in ancient Israel were those who stood between God and the people. They interceded for the people before God. And they taught the ways of God to the people. The primary calling of the priest was to teach the law. And the law summed up the character and the purposes of Yahweh for his world. So just like the Israelite priest taught the people the ways of Yahweh, Israel as a whole, as a nation, were to be priests among the nations of the world. They were to model the ways of Yahweh before a watching world so that the nations of the world would be attracted to Yahweh. So notice that what Yahweh is doing in Israel doesn't belong to some private area that we call the Israelite religious experience. Yahweh is dealing with them on the public arena, on the public stage of international politics. And so when the nations see what Yahweh is doing with Israel, and they see Israel's obedience to Yahweh, the nations will ask questions. And in response to those questions, Israel will tell her story. So notice that if Israel is obedient to God, she will have a high profile. She will have a visibility before other nations. Not that she seeks visibility or publicity, but if Israel is obedient to the covenant law, a law that is unique in all its social economic and political dimensions. If Israel is obedient to these laws and to these institutions that Yahweh gave her, then she would stand out among the nations. She would be a different kind of people. And that was Yahweh's commission or calling to Israel. We must not think this was limited to Old Testament Israel. Jesus taught his disciples the same in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the light of the world, and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. He went on to say, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and glorify God. And Peter, in his first epistle to Christians scattered around the Mediterranean world, he said to them, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The same language of Exodus 19, but now applied to this multinational Christian community. And a little further, he goes on to say, live such honorable lives among the nations so that even though they insult you as evildoers, they may glorify God on the day he visits us and when they see your good works. And what are these good works? How is Israel called to be obedient to Yahweh? How are they called to be obedient to Yahweh? For that, let's turn to the second passage in Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 to 19. And I'll read from verse 14. Behold, 
To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner or the alien, giving him food and clothing. Love the alien, therefore, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. And these verses are packed with rich theology. And in some sense, they sum up the whole theology of the Old Testament. And they give you a glimpse of the worldview of Israel. And Hebrew scholars tell us these six verses form two triplets. The first triplet, the first three verses, verses 14, 15, and 16, form the first triplet. And the second triplet is verses 17, 18, and 19. And those who have done you know, Bible study around this text say the first verse of the first triplet parallels the first verse of the second triplet. In other words, verse 14 parallels verse 17, and they go together, and they speak of who Yahweh is. And then verse 15 and verse 18 go together, and they speak of what Yahweh does. Yahweh does something extraordinary. Yahweh does something unusual. And then verse 16 and 19, they spell out what Yahweh requires. So let's begin with who Yahweh is in verse 14. The entire universe, all that is, all that is seen and unseen belongs to him. In other words, he is the cosmic owner, not only of the earth, but of the whole world. And we are reminded again from Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine, mine. And that's Abraham Kaper saying these words to us. God is not some mighty tribal deity in the desert somewhere. He is the owner of all that is. He is the owner of all nations and all peoples, all entities, everything and everyone belongs to him. And then verse 17, Yahweh, your God, is God of gods. Not only does the physical universe belong to him, but also the spiritual universe. Whatever spiritual beings the nations might worship, Yahweh is supreme. He has no rivals. He is the cosmic honor. He is the sovereign ruler. Yahweh shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. He is not a God you can twist around your little finger. There are no religious tricks you can learn to manipulate him. He is not a fertility God like the Canaanite gods. What then does Yahweh do in verse 15? 
he stoops down to love a particular people. Yes, this God who owns everyone and everything set his heart to love your forefathers and chose you their descendants out of all the peoples. Your forefathers, Abraham, the coward, Isaac, the weak parent, Jacob, the schemer and deceiver, these ugly, unattractive men were the ones on whom Yahweh set his affection. And you, their descendants, rebels in the desert, this collection of half-formed tribes, Yahweh has set his love on you in a way that he has not loved any other people. But the early chapters of Deuteronomy tell us that Yahweh is at work in the histories of other nations. He is the one behind their migrations and their conquests, even though they do not acknowledge him. And yet Yahweh is doing with Israel what he is not doing with other nations. Why? Because there are no other nations where he is at work for the sake of other nations. They are called to be vehicles, to, to be bearers of Yahweh's love. It is important to keep the balance of verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 speaks of Yahweh as the universal Lord to whom all peoples belong. But verse 15 speaks of God's particular election and redemption of a particular people. If we lose that tension then we end up with two equally unbiblical extremes. On one hand, we will turn towards universalism. In other words, we blur the distinction between the people of God and the world of God. And the world of God is made up of people who are not yet God's people. We end up blurring that distinction. The people of God and those who are not yet the people of God. And on the other hand, we can so stress God's particular electing love for the church that we give the impression that God is only concerned about the church and has no time for the world. Or God loves only the church and not those outside the church. And that is exclusivism, which is just as heretical as universalism. God loves us for the sake of the world. Israel's election is for the sake of the non-elect. The gospel is for the world. And so is the church. And this is the first challenge of mission, of witnessing to the uniqueness of Yahweh in a world of religious diversity. The New Testament writers apply this language to Jesus of Nazareth. They speak of Jesus as king of kings, and Lord of Lords. They see in this figure of Jesus the story of Israel coming to its climax. He embodies in his person what Israel was called to be an obedient son who, through his obedience, would be a light to the nations. But they also see not only Jesus as the embodiment of Israel's story but as the incarnation of Israel's God, that in Jesus, Yahweh himself has come into his world. 
And so the challenge for us as New Testament believers is to witness to the uniqueness of what God has done in Jesus of Nazareth. To put it in another way, how do we relate what God has been doing in other nations and their histories, what God has been doing in all cultures and in every individual human being's life? How do we relate that to what God has done decisively once for all in Jesus of Nazareth? And that is the challenge we face today, to bear witness to what God is doing in the world and bring that into relation to what God has done in Jesus of Nazareth that he has not done in any other person or any other event. So Yahweh stooped down to love a particular people, but Yahweh, as we read in this text, also defends the orphan and the widow and the alien. Verse 18, here is a unique vision of God. You can search all the religions of the world and philosophies, and you will never come across a picture of God like this. The power of Yahweh is linked to powerlessness, to the weak, to the vulnerable, and to the defenseless in society. Because they had no defender, Yahweh becomes their defender. Yahweh becomes the voice of the voiceless. Israel received from Yahweh unique institutions, institutions that marked it out from other nations, institutions that made it different from other nations. Institutions like the Sabbath, not only one day a week, but one year in seven. Then the Jubilee, every 50th year, the ban on interest. There were laws pertaining to the redemption of slaves and cities of refuge. Now, what all these unique institutions had in common was this. They were designed to protect the weak and the vulnerable in Israel against the ruthless greed of the rich and the powerful. And the index of justice in Israel was to what extent the weak and the vulnerable were brought into community. This perhaps is how God gauges the health of the nation. It's not the GDP. It's not how the stock market is performing. It is how the nation treats the weak and the vulnerable. He looks at the way we treat prisoners, the way we treat the physically and mentally afflicted and the disabled, the way we treat the unborn child, the unemployed and the unemployable. Yahweh links his cause with theirs. And if we are the people of Yahweh, then we are called to be the voice of the voiceless and to use the gifts that he has given us to articulate their cries and look at all that is happening in the world through their eyes. In societies where there are grave inequalities, wide disparities between the rich and the poor, you have a system of domination. The few use the state and the whole apparatus of the state to preserve their interests at the expense of the majority poor. And that is why idolatry and social injustice went together in Israel. When Israel forgot Yahweh, Israel also turned her back on the institutions 
that Yahweh gave her, and Israel began to imitate the political and commercial practices of the nations around. Israel lost her economic and political distinctiveness. And that is why when Yahweh sent his prophets, they talked not only about idolatry, but also about social injustice. They spoke for the weak and the powerless in Israel. And this is the second challenge for doing mission in our time. The challenge of social injustice. But what does Yahweh require? And as we read in verse 16, he requires repentance. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And the parallel in verse 19, love the alien therefore. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I don't know if you noticed the logic. Love the aliens because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. It is Yahweh's nature to love the aliens, to love the immigrant, to love the stranger. You were aliens in Egypt. So Yahweh loved you. And now that you know Yahweh, the way you show that you know him is by loving the aliens in your midst. Who are the aliens? It is for you to work out in your context. But Jesus broadened the scope of aliens by including our enemies, our personal and national enemies. Loving our enemies is the mark of our discipleship, our willingness to love the other, those who don't belong to our group, perhaps those who don't speak our language, perhaps those who don't look like us, perhaps those who, if we invited them, they might never reciprocate. They are other And so here is the third challenge to mission, the challenge of nationalism, to bear witness to God in the midst of our national insularity. And often nationalism is very difficult to define, but it's the attitude or mentality that says, as long as my nation is doing well, to hell with the rest of the world. Whatever is good for my nation, whatever is good for America, must be good for the whole world. Or that American lives are more important than Asian lives. Or European lives are better than African lives. Notice that to say we now belong to the family of God, this global society of the redeemed is to make a political statement. It is to say that my highest loyalty no longer belongs to my ethnic group. My highest loyalty no longer belongs to my nation or culture. It now belongs to this global family to which I have now been introduced. Another way of putting the same is looking at Matthew 28. When Jesus said, you disciple by baptizing them in the name of the triune God. What does it mean to be baptized in the name of the triune God? It means your loyalty no longer belongs to yourself, to your family, to your culture, to your nation, but to the triune God. You now belong to the family of God. Mission, my friends, is primarily not about going. It is about being. It is about being a distinct people, a countercultural people in the midst of other cultures. 
Mission is about modeling before a watching world what the living God of the Bible is truly like. And so regardless of where you work or live, if you're a believer, you are called to mission. Every one of us is called to mission. Mission is about putting our lives at the cutting edge of where God is at work. And we have seen that God is at work unmasking, exposing the false gods of religion and culture and materialism and sex and education and science. God is at work defending the defenseless. God is at work defending the weak and the vulnerable. God is at work freeing people, giving them new identities that transcend those of class, race, and nation. And so he calls each one of us to be part of his mission wherever we are. Come, let me pray with us. Lord, how thankful that you have called us to join you in your work. You call each one of us to mission. You call each one of us to put our lives at the cutting edge of where you are at work. And Lord, you are at work in our schools, in our hospitals, on the playground, on the train, on the bus, changing lives and unmasking and exposing the false gods of religion and culture. Give us the courage, dear God, to join you in your mission. Give us the courage to join you to do that which only you can do. And give us the faith to believe that you have invited us to be part of this. In Jesus' name.